through 7. And so we're not going to read all of this passage of Scripture from Matthew chapter number 5 to Matthew chapter number 7. But this is a passage of Scripture commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Anybody heard of this before, the Sermon on the Mount? Also known as the Beatitudes, where Jesus sits down and they record a long, prolonged teaching session that uh, uh, Jesus gave. Now this teaching session called the Sermon on the Mount, many have referred to it as the ethics of the kingdom of heaven or the culture of the kingdom of God. And it was very, very countercultural, the statements that Jesus was making. He was basically introducing a brand new ethic or culture based on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So I'll go ahead and allow you to be seated and uh, you can just keep this passage open if you want to and we'll look at a few other verses as well as uh, we study the culture of the kingdom and our subtitle reprogramming your mind. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and the promises therein. Lord God, I pray that you'd help us tonight, Lord. Those of us, those that are weary and those that have had a lot going on today, give us the next few moments the ability to focus our thoughts and concentrate on what you would have to speak to us tonight from your word. Let us leave here today enriched and strengthened by studying and spending time in your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Now, this passage called the Sermon on the Mount is full of so many valuable things, and we certainly you know don't have time in one sitting to go through and study each one of them that might be a great thing to do at some point to study uh, the sermon on the mount but we want to look at uh, basically what jesus was doing here now we've heard the things like blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are the peacemakers blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness blessed are the meek um we, we've heard all these things before. We've heard where Jesus said, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, he that looketh on a woman to lust has committed adultery in his heart. We've heard this so many times in our lives growing up as Christians, most of us, uh, that they almost sound trite. But what you've got to remember is, as Jesus sat on the hillside teaching this day, this was the first time these people had ever heard such things. And many of them were shocking and extreme. For instance, when uh, Jesus said uh, things like, uh, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, but I say unto you uh, that you're supposed to turn the other cheek. And uh, when well, we've heard turn the other cheek, that's just a part of our vernacular. But it wasn't a part of their vernacular. Uh, that was something brand new for them. If someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. If someone takes your uh, takes this from you, give them your coat as well. And uh, so this was just a brand new way of thinking. And Jesus was introducing basically the foundation for the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. But as you look closely at the Sermon on the Mount, there's one thing that you may notice, maybe you've never noticed before, but I want to bring it to your attention, is that Jesus' primary focus wasn't on learning, but his primary focus was on unlearning. There were things that these people believed, concepts that were established in their mind that he was trying to undo. He was reverse engineering, if you would, the minds of these Many of them religious, some of them hypocritical people that were gathered there to hear them. He had to first unlearn before he could 
teach them something before they could learn anything. And so that's why you hear these two phrases repeated quite often during the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say. In other words, he's saying, this is what you believe, this is what you have learned, but I want to take that back. I want you to kind of unprogram that or unlearn that because I want you to learn something new because oftentimes what Jesus was saying was going to be an upgrade or a replacement of the Old Testament principle. In this New Testament principle, the kingdom of God. And so he said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say unto you, if a man strikes you, turn the other cheek. You have heard it said I, uh, that uh, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But uh, I say unto you. Any man that is angry with his brother without cause is in danger of hellfire. You've heard it said, you are to love your enemy and hate your, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemy. So he was saying, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And one thing that I want you to get right now, if you got your hearts and your ears and your minds open, is that one half of spiritual growth is learning what we don't know, but the other half is unlearning what we do know. In order to grow spiritually, sometimes there are some things that we have to unlearn because faith is not just about believing, but faith is also about uninstalling mistaken beliefs because all of us believe something. Everybody has a series of beliefs. If faith was just believing, then every person would have faith because everybody believes something. But faith is not just believing, but it's also uninstalling mistaken beliefs. And I did use the term uninstall, which probably most of you recognize that as a computer term. You install programs, and you can also uninstall computer programs. Our minds are like computers that have been infected with a virus, which can be, which is sin or misconceptions. And when these things get into our mind, it begins to affect it. Just like anybody ever had a virus on your computer before? It's no fun, is it? Something comes from uh, the internet. You, you download something and you pick up a virus or you open up an email that someone sent you. And it, it, it brings a virus into your computer and it starts doing all these crazy pop-ups and you can't get them off there. And, and, uh, and then it starts running sluggishly. Well, this is what happens to our minds. Our minds are like computers that have been affected by sin and misconceptions, so they don't run the way that they're supposed to. And these misconceptions keep us from operating like we were designed to. And unless those misconceptions are uninstalled, we will continue thinking wrongly. So half of learning is unlearning. Have you guys got that so far? And here's the deal. Unlearning is usually twice as hard as learning. It's a lot more difficult. If you don't believe that, uh, it's a lot easier to get off on the right exit than to realize two miles later that you missed the exit. 
Because you learn, but, but, but uh, now you have to get off on the next exit, turn around and backtrack and go back. So unlearning sometimes takes a little longer. It's a little more challenging. It's a little more difficult to unlearn because these are our concepts. These are our beliefs. And faith is about rewiring or reprogramming the human brain. And this is what happens when we take time to read our Bibles. This is what happens when we come to church to Bible study and actually listen to what the preacher is saying. This is what happens is our brains are rewired so that we can begin to obey God. We are literally upgrading our minds by downloading the mind of Christ. Upgrading our minds by downloading the mind of Christ. And what the Bible says is we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We are changed by the renewing of our mind. I didn't know you guys were so disinterested in computers. But uh, we, we are changed by the renewing of our mind. Just like if you have a computer that's sluggish and you've got to uninstall some things to get it functioning correctly. And... Uh, Our minds and our faith must be defragged like a computer by downloading the mind of Christ through reading the Bible and spending time in the Word of God. Let me just tell you right now that if you're not reading the Bible and you don't have any interest in Bible study, you're not growing spiritually. That's just the, 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 the raw fact. But I'm a good person. Well, that's great. I'm glad you're a good person, but you're not growing spiritually. Because you can't grow spiritually until you download the mind of Christ and let his thoughts become your thoughts. And the only way I can do that is through the word of God. When I read the Bible, what happens? It changes the way that I think. You say, well, I read the Bible through five years ago. I got it all in there. You don't have it all in there. Amen. You've forgotten most of it. And while you're studying the word of God, it's like you're reconnected to the source and you begin to understand again the things that are important. Now, there were two doctors that uh, did a little study. They were from the National Institute of Mental Health. Their names were uh, Dr. Avi Carney and Dr. Leslie Ungerleader. And in this study, what they did is they had people do a series of exercises that were like finger-tapping exercises where they would tell them when to tap, based on whatever cues that they were giving them. And what they did is they scanned their brain while they were doing these exercises. And they did them every day for four weeks. Guess what happened? What they discovered is the area of the brain that was responsible for this action of tapping the fingers, which they're able to do on brain scans, find out what part of the brain controls that activity. The part of the brain that controls that activity in four weeks had begun, had begun to grow, had begun to develop through this finger-tapping exercise. And what, they, what the brain was actually doing is it was recruiting new nerve cells and rewiring neurological connections to improve its ability to function in this way. And guess what? When we read the Word of God, we are basically rewiring our brain so that we think a different way. We're downloading a new operating system that reconfigures the mind. And we stop thinking human thoughts and we start thinking God thoughts. Amen. By consistently 
reading the Word of God, we are literally changing the way that we think. That's why the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Now, what I want to do is tonight for a few minutes, I want to look at five things briefly. And these are things that we could teach a whole lesson on. But what these five things are that I want to look at are five thinking upgrades that need to happen in order for someone to live out the culture of the kingdom. If you're going to live out the culture of the kingdom, there are certain things that have to be learned. And before there can be learned, there are certain beliefs that have to be unlearned. So in order for you to function the way God wants you to function in the kingdom of God, there's some things you've got to uninstall and in its place install and upgrade. So we want to look at five of these uninstall, install situations to help reprogram your brain so that you can function according to the culture of the kingdom. So number one, number one is you are unloading one way of thinking and replacing it with another way of thinking. Number one is from carnal to spiritual. If I want to function in the kingdom of God, I've got a default way of thinking, and it's carnality, the carnal mind. And in order to understand and embrace the culture of the kingdom, the shining city set on the hill, I've got to uninstall the carnal mind and let it be replaced with the spiritual mind. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. We jump to verse 4. It says, for the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Verse 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That means it's at odds or in warfare with God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. A person who is not born again is going to naturally live after the flesh or this carnal way of thinking. The word carnal comes from the same word as carne, carne asada, which means flesh or meat. And so it's, uh, when we talk about a carnal way of thinking, we're talking about a fleshly or physical or temporal here and now way of thinking. And when we talk about a spiritual way of thinking, we're, take, we're, we're talking about an eternal spiritual mentality. Now, there's two guys in the Bible that kind of personify this difference between 
carnal mind and spiritual mind. And here's what we've got to do. We've got to understand that before we were born again, by default, we thought with a carnal mentality. But what has to happen is we've got to allow that carnal mentality to be removed and replaced with the mind of the Spirit or thinking or pursuing after the things of the Spirit. These two men in the Bible that I mentioned are Jacob and Esau, which were twin brothers. Esau was born first. Jacob was born second. But the Bible says something interesting about these brothers. The Bible says that God said, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Not that God just chose to hate an individual, but it is the prototypical person that is, that is uh, uh, basically personified by this man Esau. That God says, I don't love that, but I love the prototypical individual represented by Jacob. And here's the whole difference. The Bible says Jacob was interested in things that were eternal, and Esau was interested in things that were temporal here and now. Anybody remember the story that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of beans because he was hungry and he wanted satisfaction, right? I wish I hadn't said that. My wife's smiling at me because she fixed me a bowl of beans tonight and I didn't get to have any before I left and they're waiting for me at home. Praise God. I can relate to this story. But instead of taking care of my temporal man, I came to church to take care of my spirit man. Praise God. But he said, the birthright's eternal. And Jacob said, I'm willing to forego some temporary satisfaction of my flesh for something that has eternal value. The problem is there are too many people in the world that are concerned about satisfying their flesh. How many people do you see violating their moral code, violating their values just for pleasure's sake, for temporary, momentary, instantaneous fulfillment and satisfaction? Well, you know what? That's only natural if you think with the carnal mind. And if you continue to think with the carnal mind, you're going to continue to stumble and make the same mistakes over and over and over and over and over again. Because the Bible says the carnal mind is enmity against God, and it's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. It's impossible for you to please God with a carnal mind. No matter how much willpower you try to to, to, uh, uh, exude and utilize, With a carnal mind, you're always going to end up taking care of the flesh and ignoring things that are spiritual. Amen. So this upgrade from carnal to spiritual could also be described as as an upgrade from thinking temporary or temporal for the now to beginning to think about things that are eternal. Amen. Because... Uh, what, what happened is, just to give you a little, a, a little bit of a background, is that people who are not born again are spiritually dead. That's the, what the Bible says. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Everybody say dead. You weren't sick. You weren't asleep. You were dead. Spiritually dead. Your spirit man was not alive. So every human being is to be a tripartite being, which means body, soul, and spirit. Anybody heard that before? Body, soul, spirit. Hold up three fingers with me right now. Body, soul, spirit. And it, the real simple thing is the body is the is the container. My my flesh, this carcass, if you would, is the body, and my soul is my mind, my will, and my emotions. That means my thoughts, my passion 
happen and uh, the things that I want to do, the things that I choose to do, that's my soul. And my spirit is this ethereal, whimsical, invisible part that when it is alive, it connects me to God. And those that, uh, and of course, God's plan is that we would live our lives according to His leadership and His direction, and that can only happen if the spirit man's alive. That's like, let me just give you an example. Uh, anybody remember CB radios? CB radios? You're like, Rager 1-9. And you're talking to your boss. Your boss is telling you what to do. Uh, yeah, I need you to um, move that slab of concrete, uh, break it up, and take it over to here. And uh, then I want you to drive over here, and I'll give you a call back and let you know what's happening, what you need to do next. Well, guess what? What if you get there and you lose the CB connection? Or let's talk contemporary for our young people. You lose your cell connection. And you're calling your boss. You, you don't have a signal. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? And you can't get in touch with them. And so what do you have to do? You have to go to default, which is do what you think is best. This is the case of people who are spiritually dead. They, they, when your spirit is dead, that means you have no connection with God. And He can't order your steps or direct your path or give you the ability to make wise choices or spirit-prompted choices. And so you just trust yourself. And guess what happens? If there is no impulse coming from God, then where's the impulse coming from? From your flesh. And so your flesh tells your mind, will, and emotions, I want that right there. It looks good. I'm going to enjoy that. And so you think a way to rationalize it and conceptualize what it is that your flesh wants to do, make excuses for it, until you find yourself doing it. That's why those that are carnally minded cannot please God. You can no more please God with a carnal mind then know what your boss wants you to do if you have no cell signal. All right? So the spirit man, and, and, and that's why the spirit new birth message is so important. When someone receives the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it's not just about speaking in tongues. I'm hoping you get that point right now. We're not here to be a language institute to teach people how to speak in a different language. Come on now. We're here to see people get plugged in with God so their appetites, their desires, their direction, everything about their life can be transformed. All things can become new. And now, as the Bible says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So now the Spirit takes control and gives direction in their life. The carnal mind cannot please God. That's why we preach so strong that a person must be born of the water and the Spirit. Because if we try to disciple someone without the Holy Ghost, we're wasting our time, aren't we? Because the spirit birth is an awakening of the sleeping portion of that tripartite being that connects us with the mind and the direction of God. So the first point is there has got to be an uninstalling of the carnal way of thinking and an upgrade to the spirit way of thinking. Now here's the key. The key is not just being born again. But the Bible doesn't say, the Bible does not say as that uh, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who have been born of the Spirit. But it says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So it's not just a case of, I need to receive the Holy Spirit. 
That's the first step. But then you have to learn how to walk after the Spirit and pursue things of the Spirit instead of the things of the flesh. And we all go through times in our lives when the meter tips the wrong way and we're more hungry and our appetite is more stimulated for things that will take care of the flesh and bring us temporary satisfaction. My wife and I read a book recently and it talked about the difference between happy now and happy later. Happy now is when you say, I want it now, and you make stupid choices if you follow the happy now impulse. But people that are wise and people whose lives are put together tend to follow the happy later, uh, not impulse, but mentality or way of thinking. Spiritual, long-term, eternal. Yeah, this will make me happy now, but what about five years from now? Yeah, it will make me happy now to go out and put this on the credit card, but what about two years from now? It's happy now versus happy later, and this is the... The same concept of spiritual versus carnal. Amen? So the first uninstall is the carnal mind. And the first download from God through the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the spiritual mind. Number two, so that's the first. To get the culture of the kingdom, this reprogramming has to happen. The second thing is, number two, I I gave you ness there, but uh, it's number one from worldliness to holiness, from worldliness to holiness. This is a change of thinking. This is a default way of thinking that has to be transformed in order to please God and be what God wants you to be and live in the culture of of the kingdom of God. Let's look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the Romans here and saying, I want you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Take this life, this body, your life, present it to God as a living sacrifice, Holy, acceptable to God. And then verse 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, or don't let the influence of this world determine how you're going to be, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. There it says it right there. Let the change happen because something is changed in your mental computer that ye may prove what is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God, that you can show other people, you can show forth, what God's plan and will is. So this mental upgrade of uninstalling a worldly mentality and reinstalling a mentality of holiness causes us to be different from this present world. Different in a lot of ways. We have different values. There's th- different things are important to us than are important to someone with a worldly mentality. Someone with a mentality of holiness has different priorities than a person who has a, a, a mentality of worldliness. Their lifestyle is different. Their boundaries are different. Can I say that again? Their boundaries are different. These are the boundaries in my life, things that I will and won't do. If you have a worldly mindset, your boundaries are going to be totally... Well, you won't have boundaries for the most part. But uh, with a mindset of holiness, it creates boundaries in your life. What we permit and what we prohibit in our life and our interests and the way we invest our time changes when we uninstall a worldly mentality and upgrade to a mentality 
of holiness. Look at 1 John 2.15. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The Bible says here, love not the world. And, uh, of course, we taught uh, some time ago that uh, in this passage is not talking about despising the globe or uh, even despising people that are in the world. What the Bible is telling us not to love, the world that we are not to love is basically this. The organized system of human civilization that is hostile to God and alienated from God. The fallen world that we are not supposed to love. So what worldliness is, worldliness is a mentality that rejects God's rules and replaces it with our own rules. It exalts our opinion above God's truth. This is the mentality of worldliness that has to be uninstalled in order for godliness or holiness to replace it. Uh, and so worldliness, let me, let me uh, just share this with you. In 1 John 2.15, it says, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Understand that this is internal. This is something in somebody. It's not something outside. So worldliness is not what's outside, but worldliness is what happens inside based on what's outside, based on the stimulus of the outside. So worldliness is internal, but it reveals itself in our conduct, in our behavior. But the issue or the root of the problem is internal. And what we uh, have learned is that even as believers, there is always this potential or tendency to drift towards worldliness. It's subtle, it's gradual, and it happens on the inside. I want to talk real quickly uh, about a few influences of worldliness. If you want to jot down some notes, feel free to do so. Number one is media. We did a study on media some time ago. And, and the problem is we're living in a, uh, uh, an environment where we're totally surrounded continuously by media, whether it's the radio, whether it's the Internet, whether it's television, movies, cell phone, uh, iPad, iPod, I whatever. It's the media is just like everywhere. It's like a, just a constant backdrop drop of our life. And the problem is, is media has influence over us. And if we don't filter what we allow ourselves to see, it begins to produce a mindset of worldliness. The danger is not in watching, but the danger is in thoughtless watching, just watching whatever comes along without any regard for how it is affecting your world your worldview. And I could call it unwatchingly watching. Just sitting there like a, a vegetable, letting whatever comes across uh, come into your mind, into your thoughts, into your eyes. Uh, I want to say I'm thankful for my wife and uh, her stand in making sure and being very, very careful about what our girls are allowed to observe from media. Because it's going to affect their direction and their mentality. Right? 
If you just prop your kids up in front of a TV and let them watch whatever they want to watch or whatever comes along or say, well, I'm not going to let them watch porn. I mean, that is so dumb. Obviously, you're not going to let them. But just anything that comes along, anything that comes through, whatever the worldview is that's being presented, whatever the, the viewpoint is and the values of this world that's coming through, you can be lulled to ignore the battle with the flesh if you watch without thinking. So when we watch what everyone else is watching, saying, well, I want to be a good witness. I don't want to be missing out on anything in the world. We actually, we don't strengthen our witness, but we weaken our witness. Amen. Thank you for that rousing response. So in the area of media, the key to victory in this area is to recognize that God is there watching. Mm-hmm. When we surf the internet, God's sitting next to us. Jesus is right there with us. When we listen to the radio, he's listening with us. Would you want to listen? Let's say Jesus is in the car next to you. You want to listen to what you're listening to? You, do you want to keep uh, browsing the sites you're browsing? Do you want to watch what you're watching on television or pop that DVM that you were going to pop in? In God's presence? Here's the thing. You're always in God's presence. And he's always there. And this is the key to living victoriously and not allowing your mind and your mentality and your, uh, uh, your mental computer, if you would, to be programmed toward worldliness. Another area is music. I'm not going to talk a lot about music, but in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, the Bible gives us clear direction. It says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. So here's your guidelines for what you should listen to. All right? Come on, listen. All right. Uh, Another thing, number number three, I believe it is, or yeah, three, is uh, materialism. Materialism, this is an influence of worldliness. Uh, this is the mentality that the best things in life are things. And, and the idea that we are what we have. Luke chapter 12, verse 15 addresses this. And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. Be careful, the Bible says, of covetousness, because your life does not consist in the abundance of things which you own. What is coveting? Well, coveting is one of the ten prohibitions in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. And and what is that? Well, coveting means desiring too much stuff, wanting too much stuff. The Bible says you can't serve two masters. You either love one and hate the other. And then it says you can't serve both God and mammon. Or probably the clearest way to translate that easily and quickly is you can't serve God and stuff. God and money. God and materials. You can't serve these two masters. And so covetousness is actually choosing earthly trinkets over 
eternal treasures. So we're talking about letting a mentality or mindset of worldliness be removed so that a mentality or mindset of holiness can re replace it. And uh, we fall into this worldly trap when we begin to think that our stuff will make us happy or make us more important or make us secure or make us truly rich. If I had more stuff or money, I'd be rich. That's not true. That's not what rich means. If your idea of rich has to do with money, you've got the wrong mentality of riches. Don't measure wealth incorrectly. So the way to deal with this is to consider the true riches which you have in Christ Jesus is to express gratitude for what God has given you instead of griping and carping about what you don't have is to dematerialize your life and learn to give generously. Amen? And uh, another point, uh, I believe it's number four, is uh, with my clothing and the influence of worldliness also with clothes. The Bible talks in First Timothy about adornment and dress. And uh, what, what we've learned with the, the different makeup between males and females is that uh, adornment and dress is an area in which women tend to be more concerned than men about than, let me say, real men about. There's some people, I think they call them metrosexuals, guys that are buffing their fingernails and plucking their eyebrows and looking pretty and all that. That's, that's being like a lady because God gave women, amen, an eye to make themselves beautiful and the things around them beautiful. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. You don't want to see a birthday present that I wrap. My wife can do a beautiful job. You don't want to see a flower arrangement that I put together. Now, this is going to look pretty rough. I'll take it a step further. You don't want to see an outfit that I put together and try to walk out the door with. And Sister Brown says, uh-uh-uh. Try again, buddy. Another strike. Three strikes and you're out. I take over. Amen. But females tend to be have an eye to make themselves and things around them beautiful and attractive. And this is wonderful. This is good. But dress, however, is also an area where there are dangers of immodesty or indiscretion. You know what? Some people think, well, there's areas of my life that God is interested in, and then there's areas that he don't care about. That is not the God that I serve. The God that I serve, there is not one square inch of my life with which God is unconcerned. He is concerned of every area of my life, including my closet. And he is concerned about the heart behind what I wear and whether my wardrobe reveals uh, the presence of worldliness or the presence of godliness. Now, in 1 Timothy, Paul encourages women to adorn themselves with modesty and self-control. Everybody say modesty. Everybody say self-control. Modesty is an important word. But modesty begins with the heart, not the hemline or the neckline. Okay? You try to legislate, well, you have to have it here, da 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 Modesty begins in the heart. And respectable apparel is always the result of a godly heart. Did you like that? 
Modesty is avoiding clothes and adornment that is extravagant or sexually enticing. Modesty is humility expressed in dress. See, when we come from a worldly mentality, this doesn't make sense to us. But when we uninstall a worldly mentality and reinstall a biblical worldview of godliness and holiness, all of a sudden it starts to make sense to us. But there's got to be this upgrade in order to comprehend the culture of the kingdom. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Not follow this list of rules, but let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. So modesty is humility expressed in dress. And immodesty is the act of drawing undue attention to yourself or pride on display by what you wear. Number three on the backside, the third download upgrade. Uninstall, reinstall is, and we're getting close here, wrapping up, from self-interest to kingdom interest. Self-interest to kingdom interest. Human beings are born naturally looking out for themselves. If you don't believe that, look at a baby. Their only concern is themselves. Let's be honest. Babies don't cry if you're hungry. Babies cry if they're hungry. Right? Babies don't cry if you're uncomfortable. They cry if they're uncomfortable. Babies don't care if you haven't been able to change your clothes in three days. I want my diaper changed right now. It's all about me. That's immaturity. That's a child. That's a baby. And human beings never lose this. They just learn how to mask it better. So people don't know and can't tell. But there has to be an uninstall of self-interest and a reinstall of kingdom interest in order to understand the concept of the culture of the kingdom. Matthew 6.31 says this, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. If you're going to be what God wants you to be somewhere along the line, you've got to tip the balance to where it's not me first and the kingdom second, or me first and the kingdom third or fourth. How, how many people, how many people still think they're right with God and think God is going to use them and God's going to bless them when their self-interest is so far ahead of seeing the kingdom of God move forward. And anything that slightly the least bit inconveniences their desire or personal pursuits or whatever is going to get kicked to the curb. Uh, Whatever would oppose that is going to get kicked to the curb immediately. They need to, first of all, uninstall this default mentality of I'm going to take care of me first. It's me first. That me first mentality has no place in the kingdom of God. It won't work long term. Amen? 
You'll flame out immediately. And so sometimes as young people, children that are raised in the kingdom of God, raised in church, we have to reach a point where we realize I'm not going to be successful this way. I'm going to be frustrated the rest of my life if I keep looking out for number one. And I have got to defer my interests to the interests of what God has called me to do, which is to do my father's business and see the kingdom of God move forward. Amen? First, the kingdom. God says, seek the kingdom first, and I'll take care of everything else. Seek the kingdom first, and I'll take care of it. That's what Jesus said. Do you believe the words of Jesus or not? If you put kingdom, the kingdom of God number one in your life, if you'll prioritize the kingdom of God at the top of your list, God says, I'm going to take care of everything else. You don't have to worry about this and that. That doesn't mean you just uh, 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 neglect every area of your life and say, well, I'm putting God first, so I'm not going to worry about going to school. And I put God first, so I'm going to show up an hour late for work. And I put God first, so I'm not going to worry about balancing my checkbook. And I put God first, so I'm not going to worry about making sure my marriage is in order. I put God, no, that's, that, that's not what it's saying. But what it's saying is if you put God's interests ahead of your interests, then God's going to take care of the issues that get out of hand and the issues that you can't control, the issues that go beyond your ability to control. I believe the Word of God is true. I believe the Word of God is true, and I believe the words of Jesus. So I am asking you, I'm encouraging you, I am imploring you, uninstall that self-first mentality, that self-interest mentality, that selfish mentality, and say, I'm going to put a kingdom-first mentality in, and God's going to take care of me, and I'm going to trust Him. Come on, come on, come on, I'm preaching the truth to you. Hallelujah. Number four, you've got to uninstall a negative mentality and reinstall it with a positive mentality, from negative to positive. You've got to uninstall a negative perspective of the world, a negative way of dealing with issues and problems, and replace it with a positive mentality. If you want God's best for your life, then you have to reprogram your mind from thinking negative to thinking positive. Now, if you want to just struggle through, that's your, that's your choice. If you want to just be miserable, that's your choice. I don't want to be miserable. I don't want to be miserable. You guys want to be miserable? I don't want to be miserable. If you want what God has for you, you've got to transition your way of thinking. There is a fatal flaw functioning in your system. It's called negativity, and it's slowing everything down. It's causing your mind not to function the way that it's supposed to function. It's causing you not to function the way that you're supposed to function, and I'm encouraging you. I'm encouraging you to uninstall that negative mentality and replace it with one that is positive. When our thinking becomes contaminated by sin, and this world, our mind is no longer in line with God's Word. And we can't live the abundant life that the Word of God promises. Negative thoughts can corrupt us like a virus. The Bible says in the Beatitudes, I believe it's in chapter 6. Let me see here if I can find it. Somebody look, 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 at it, look for it uh, for me. The passage of Scripture says that if the eye be light, the whole body is light. If the eye be dark then also the whole body is dark. I think it's in chapter 6 or chapter 7. Let's see if we have some, some fast readers, some quick finders here. 
Well, it's in there. Okay. Okay. 622. Okay, there it is. 622. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now what in the world is this passage talking about? If your eye be light, then the whole body is light. If your eye be dark, then the whole body is dark. Is that talking about your vision, if you have like dark sunglasses on or not? What it's talking about is perception. The way you view things. If you view everything as dark, then it's going to make your whole body, your whole life dark. But if you view everything as light and process it in an arena, see what happens when you see it comes into your mind and your mind's actually what sees. The eye just brings the image in. Your mind's what processes it. And if you process things in a dark way, then your whole life is going to be dark. If you have a virus that makes you think negatively and think dark and, and think uh, uh, as if it's going to go wrong, then it is evermore going to cause your brain to function not the way that God wanted it to function. And so I'm telling you that there is a virus that needs to be removed from your thinking if you want to be what God wants you to be. Amen. Reprogramming our minds to think for God's best requires learning to control what we think about. Did you know that if you think thoughts that are depressing, you will begin to feel depressed? Yeah. Someone says, I've got an emotional problem. I just feel depressed all the time. Well, what do you think about? Well, when I wake up in the morning, I think about, oh, man, my husband's probably going to lose his job because it sounds like they're, they're going to be cutting. And then I think about my kids are probably going to fail. And, and then uh, later in the afternoon, I think about all the mistakes I've made in my life. You don't have an emotional problem. Your emotions are working just fine because your emotions are designed to enable you to feel what you're thinking. Whatever's in your mind, whatever you're processing, your emotions are designed to help you feel what you are thinking. Listen to me right now. What does the Bible say? We, we read it uh, a little earlier when we were talking about music. Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, what, 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 what? Think on these things. Now, think with me right now. Why in the world would the Bible say, think on these things, if we had no control over what we thought about? That would be giving you an impossible task. That would be like the Bible saying, if you get depressed, then go out, take two steps, and leap over the Empire State Building. I can't do that. That's impossible. Well, some people say it's impossible for me to control what I think about. The Bible says, tells us, gives us instructions about what to think about. And so if it does, then it must be within our 
capability to determine or decide what we're going to think about. And a lot of people that perennially are emotionally wrung out are people that have not learned how to gird up the loins of their mind and determine what they are going to think about. Amen? Our emotions were designed to allow us to feel based on what we are thinking about. So it's not an emotional problem that we have. It's a thinking problem. And you can't go around all day thinking about the people that have hurt you in your past and thinking about the mistakes that you've made and expect to live a happy, positive life. It won't work. It won't, it won't work. Come on. Are you, are you guys with me? It doesn't work. You can try. You can try. I'm going to think about all these people that hurt me, and I'm going to think about all these mistakes that I made, and, uh, but, but I'm going to be happy. It's not going to work. The only way you can be happy is to move beyond the past, amen, and understand God's got blessings for me in my future, in my destiny, in my next step. There is blessings, amen. So I'm going to think about the goodness of God. Not that I'm going to view the world through rose-colored glasses and pretend like nothing's going wrong if there is something uh, going wrong and something that I need to address and deal with, but I'm going to choose to think, amen, to reprogram my mental computer. And when you do, when you reprogram it, your emotions will follow. But as long as you keep thinking the same way, then your emotions are going to stay the same way. Let me just say this. You cannot prevent negative thoughts from knocking on your door. They come to all of us. But what you have to do is to stand guard at the door and say, Thanks but no thanks. We'll talk to you later. Don't let the doorknob hit you on the way out. Later. I'm going to visit with somebody else. Negative thoughts are going to come by and tempt you to think about them, but you have to determine and stand guard and say, nope, I've got a new upgrade, I've got a new way of thinking, and I'm not going to allow myself to think along those lines. Amen? Stand guard at the door and remain focused on the good things of God. And guess what? The Bible says he will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is stayed on him, stayed on the blessings of God, stayed on the goodness of God. God will keep you in perfect peace. Everybody say perfect peace. It's going to happen. You're going to go through storms. You're going to face disappointment. You're going to be hurt in your life. But you must do your part to stay in an attitude of faith and remain filled with hope. I want God's best for my life. I don't want to just struggle through. I want God's best for my life. And it, and it requires discipline in my thinking. Come on now. We be honest with each other. All of us face it. All of us fight this battle. And guess what? You're never going to reach the point where you don't have to keep fighting it. Those thoughts are always going to be knocking on your door. But you've got to continually stay on guard. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. If we entertain doubt and unbelief, God cannot work in those situations. Jesus said, if you believe, all things are possible. Well, wouldn't you think the opposite is true? If you don't believe, all things are not possible. Come on. I mean, just grammatically, look at this. If thou believe, all things are possible. Why would he put the first part in if he just wanted you to know all things are possible? Because if you don't believe, all things are not possible. So the key to programming your mind, reprogramming your mind, is to choose the right thoughts and to keep your mind set, even in the difficult times. Or I might say, especially in the difficult times, is to keep your mind set and to keep the guard at 
the door. Amen? Set your minds for success, for victory, and for progress. Cast down any thoughts that are negative and reject any thoughts that bring fear, worry, doubt, or unbelief. Say, I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't have any time for you. I don't have any time for you. Move on, move on, move on. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. The last one, the last uninstall, reinstall is from fear to courage. From fear to courage. How many are enjoying the way of the master? Many of you going through the class enjoying the way of the master. One of the things it talks about is overcoming the fear of rejection in trying to share the gospel with someone. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. Fear torments people. And he that feareth is not yet made perfect in love. Perfect love casteth out fear. Now, is the Bible telling the truth when it says fear causes torment? Fear causes torment. There's probably nothing that can torment you any more than fear. Drive you nuts, drive you crazy. What's going to happen? What if this happens? But perfect love, the Bible says, casteth out fear. Now, on Sunday, we preached uh, along the theme of I'm coming out or being released, releasing your potential. But one of the greatest things that keeps us from becoming and experience fullness in Christ is fear. And I'll put an adjective on it. Irrational fears. Everybody say irrational. Irrational fears. That doesn't mean fears that cause you to have a rash in your ear. It means fears that don't make sense if you really think about it. Irrational fears. Now according to Psychiatric books, there are over 2,000 classified fears or phobias. Anybody heard of them before? The arachnophobia, photophobia, which is the fear of having bad pictures taken of you. Phobia, phobia, which is the fear of fears. All these phobias, 2,000. But they also tell us that little babies are only born innately with two fears. Only two. The fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. That's the only fears that a baby has. You could put up like a scary looking dragon up on the screen. There's going to be... Ah. Or you could pull out a knife and they're just going to be like... They have no experience with it. The only thing they innately fear are those two things. So all the other fears that people deal with in life, are things that they learn. Everybody say learn. They are learned fears. Remember what Jesus said? You've heard it said, but I say. In other words, you've got to unlearn this in order to learn what I've got to say. In order to be what God wants you to be, you first got to unlearn some fears. Right? Come on, somebody. You've got to unlearn some fears in order to be what God wants you to be, to move from fear to courage, and it's time to uninstall some fears in your life. My uh, middle daughter, Brooklyn, uh, we had kind of an unfortunate 
situation. I was playing with her in the water in the little above-ground swimming pool behind my wife's parents' home. She had floaties on her arms. And so I was trying. She was just like clinging to me as the nature is with uh, youngsters in the water. And I said, those floaties will hold you up. Those, they'll, they'll hold you up. You can play. You can swim. And she's like, no, no, don't let go of me. Don't sink. And I like hold her out. And I let go like that. And guess what? The floaties didn't keep her above the water. And uh, too good. She's like. <laughs> so she learned to fear based on that experience. And we learn fears based on experiences in our lives that we go through. And so the next time I try to get her to enjoy a swimming pool, what happens? In a nice in-ground pool, and it has a huge, huge shallow end where she can stand with her head above the water. What happens? I cannot get her to move away from the stairs. She's holding to those steps, holding on to the pole. And I'm like, Brooklyn, come on. It's fun. You can touch the bottom. I'm right here. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. She's like, yeah, right. <laughs> but here's the point. It's irrational. You can't, there's no need to be afraid. I'm not going to let anything happen. And you could touch the bottom. You could walk around all day. But that's the way it is with fears sometimes because of experiences. Fears come, and fears are a lot worse oftentimes than the actual experience would be if you went through it. Fears are worse. And so what I had to do with her is I had to plug my ears and endure some screaming and take her out there and actually put her feet on the ground because I wanted her to face her fears. Because guess what, parents? One of your sacred duties as a parent is to help your children unlearn their fears. Because I knew that if my daughter didn't face her fears, there were a lot of fun, enjoyable days in a swimming pool she was going to miss out on in her life. And I know people, there may be people in this room who have such a fear of water that you don't get in a swimming pool, anywhere near a swimming pool. I have a friend that won't even take a, hardly take a shower. He's so afraid of water. And uh, we keep our distance from pig pen. Amen. But what, what a miserable existence to live the rest of your life plagued by an irrational fear, a fear that doesn't make sense. And so I said, Brooklyn, in essence, I was saying, you've got to face your fear or you're going to miss out on a lot of enjoyment in life. And our Heavenly Father understands that we will miss out on great joyful experiences and we will pass up fulfillment and fruitfulness unless we face our fears. There's a lot of things that people never experience in life and ministry and living for God and serving God because they are held captive by their fears. And I want to challenge you. It's time to unload fears, to unlearn fears and to learn to be courageous and do whatever God prompts and directs you to do. Amen. So the way to deal with fear is to expose yourself to the source of your terror. Because that's the only way to overcome fear. Hey, you, you don't overcome fear of failure by making sure you always succeed. 
Because if you always succeed, you're still going to fear failure. The way to deal with the fear of failure is to taste a little bit of failure and say, that don't taste too good, but it's not the end of the world. It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. So I can go forward and I can succeed and I don't have to fear failure because the fear of failure is what keeps people from stepping out and taking risks and taking chances and trying to be something special and do something special. Come on, somebody. I'm telling you right now that there are too many people that God has big plans for, but you can't do your plans because you're still in the old operating system of unnecessary and irrational, misconceived fears that keep you from being what God wants you to be. It's time to face your fears. That's how you unlearn a fear, is to face your fear, to expose yourself to the source of your, uh, your terror. What do you do? You expose yourself to small quantities of what you are afraid of. That's how you build immunity. That's how you build immunity. And I I was talking to my mom on the phone yesterday. And while I was talking to her, I looked at my daughter, uh, Eden, and she was crawling across the floor, as she always does, and picking up everything she could and putting in. Oh, let me rephrase. What she was doing, I remember now. She had a lollipop, and she was licking it, and then she would beat it on the floor. Boom, 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 and then she would lick it. And I told him, well, she's going around. That, that banging you hear is Eden beating the lollipop on the wood floor and then licking it. And I said, Mom, she eats everything. She's picking up chips and crackers and trying to pick the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, the mortar um, uh, between the... the the grout between the tiles and putting, trying to eat all this stuff. And my mom said, don't you worry about it. That's okay. That's what she needs to do. She's building up immunity. And you put a baby in a place where they are never exposed to any germs or any type of anything, and they're so vulnerable. And so you expose yourself to whatever it is that you're afraid of, and you can conquer that fear and be courageous. Amen. One of the greatest things that could happen to you would be for your fear to become a reality. And you would realize it's not as bad as I thought it was. In fact, the, the, the emotional pressure of my fear was actually worse than going through the thing itself. Man, Satan roars. Roar. The Bible says he goes about like a roaring lion. Because when he roars, what do we do? We get a defensive position. A defensive position. But you know what courage is? Courage is putting yourself in a defenseless position. Courage is putting yourself in a vulnerable position. Daniel showed courage when he was in the lion's den. Esther showed courage when she walked into the king and put herself in a position to have her life taken because she wasn't invited. Jesus showed courage when he put his life on the line and died on the cross. Courage is putting yourself in a defenseless, vulnerable position, which you will never do until you face down your fears. Courage is doing what's right regardless of the circumstance or the consequences. Ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, two, twenty, uh, three twenty-somethings that literally turned their world upside down down, turned it around, affected the whole kingdom because they were willing to be courageous and stand up and face their fear and deal with their fear and go right directly into their fear and say, I may die today, but one thing's for sure. I'm going to have the courage to do the right thing. Because when you put yourself in a defenseless position, 
it sets the stage for God to show up. Did you catch that? As long as I'm in a defensive position, it's all about me taking care of myself. When I say Saul, without a sword, without a spear, with nothing but a sling and a few stones, vulnerably. Guess what? God says, I can show up now. When Daniel walks down into the lion's den because he's standing up for righteousness and praying like God called him to pray, God says, I can show up now. He's not going down in there with a whip, and he's not going down in there uh, in uh, one of those shark cages. He's just going down there defenseless. Uh, and so now I can show up. We put ourselves in a position for God to show up, and there's some boldness, amen, that comes over us and courage that takes hold of us, amen? Have you ever noticed, and this is the final statement, you can stand to your feet. Have you ever noticed, as you stand to your feet, that the greatest experiences in your life are often the scariest? And the scariest experiences in life are often the greatest experiences. I I like to tell stories of things that happen in my life. The best stories are always when I find myself in kind of a ticky-tacky, difficult situation overseas and a missionary trip or travel or something like that. Because our greatest experiences in life are often the scariest. Have you ever wondered how crazy the concept of a roller coaster is? Really, seriously. Here, I'm going to give you money to scare, scare me half to death. Or what about going, people going to a haunted house? I'm going to put all this money and hopefully people just... Because we have a need for controlled danger. There is an innate need in us for controlled danger because the alternative of fear is boredom. Right? Right, right. Come on. Am am I over everybody's head or anybody with me right now? I'm talking about the adventure of living for Jesus Christ and stepping out and doing and being what God's called you to be. Amen. Winning a soul, reaching somebody, letting God direct you to do something. And so if you're bored, one thing's for sure. You're not following in the footsteps of Jesus because his life was not a boring life. Remember, finally, it is the failure to unlearn irrational fears and misconceptions that keeps us from becoming what God wants us to be. So it's time. In order to embrace the culture of the kingdom, to reprogram our mental computer so that we can embrace the culture of the kingdom of God. Turn to three people and said, Amen. Say, that's the truth. It's in the Word. There it is. God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.